Major Alfred Noyox was only 27 years old and a rising star in the Nazi SS. At one time, he was a promising engineering student and an amateur prize fighter. After finishing school with high marks, he had enrolled in an apprenticeship to become a precision mechanic. But during the political unrest of the early 1930s, the young Noyox got swept into the desperate and extreme politics of the Depression. He dropped out and joined the brawling SS in Berlin, leading men into riots, organizing brutal street wars against communists, and using his intelligence to rise quickly through the ranks. Shortly after his first promotion, his assignments became more surgical and more deadly. He was regularly tapped to carry out assassinations and clandestine sabotage, each success bringing Noyox more praise from the SS command, more trust. Which is what leads us to today. A new operation one that would take considerable thinking, adaptability, and ruthlessness. In his small hotel room in Gleiwitz, the young Noyox was pacing. Like many of his recent assignments, he was told not to dress in his formal black-coated SS uniform. Tonight, he was told, would be unlike anything he had ever done and was ordered to dress in specific clothes that had just been delivered to him special for this mission. After what seemed like an eternity, his phone rang. Noyox picked it up. The person on the other end of the phone was his superior, the second in command of all of the SS, the man Hitler called Ironheart. He said, Confirmed. Report to Mueller for canned goods. It was the signal. His operation was a go. Noyox picked up his bag and walked out of his hotel room. As he walked down the hallway, he knocked once on doors of other rooms, out of which came more men, also dressed in the same clothes, who followed Noyox out of the hotel. The group of men all exchanged nods as they got into their cars and drove off into the dusk towards their target, a radio station just outside of the town they were staying in on the German border with Poland. Nobody talked on the ride over. All of them knew what they were there to do. The trio of cars arrived at the radio station at 8 o'clock as the sun set. The large, gaunt radio tower loomed over the small station house. As the last minutes of light disappeared from the landscape along the border, the nearly 400-foot-tall wooden tower mutated into a haunted black silhouette. The group of men got out of the cars and Noyox took one last look at each of them to ensure they were ready. They all looked right. All of them 
wearing plain clothes that looked Polish, none of them wearing official insignias or carrying any forms of identification. To the casual bystander, the men might have looked like a group of Polish activists. In the darkness, the group of men walked up to the small radio station building. Each of them pressed their backs against the outside wall next to the front door, not making a sound. Then, Noyox gave the signal. One of his men kicked in the door, and the trained SS commandos stormed into the building. The men working at the radio station, all Germans, shouted in surprise, suddenly confronted by men with guns, barrels pressed against the backs of their heads, overwhelmed by a swift tactical operation. In what seemed like seconds, the station house was captured. Noyox ordered his men to take the German radio operators into the basement, where they were made to face the wall while their hands were tied behind their backs. Then, Noyox went upstairs to the control room to carry out his mission. Adolf Hitler had just given the order to start the war. If you were reading the news and saw a headline that said, Germany invades Poland, what would you think? Now, if you saw this headline, Polish terrorists attack German radio stations, Germans respond by invading Poland, what would you think? It wasn't enough for Hitler to take it upon himself to invade a neighboring country, even though that's exactly what was happening. There would need to be an incident at the border, a murderous act, a defiant and dangerous event, one that was the straw that broke the camel's back, one that triggered a German response. Noyak's mission was to stage that incident. Dressed in Polish clothing, his team of SS commandos were pretending to be Polish terrorists. They were going to broadcast a very important message over the emergency channel tonight. A message that would start the war. Noyox was in the control room and ordered the SS radio operator on their team to break into the broadcast. But it wasn't working. After several failed attempts, they called up the station's radio operator, being held hostage from the basement at gunpoint to break through the channel. He did. Then, the only Polish-speaking member of Noyox's commandos stepped up to the microphone and pulled out a crumpled piece of paper from his pocket. As he cleared his throat, Noyox pulled out his pistol and began firing into the air. Attention! Attention! This is Gleifitz! This station is in Polish hands! 
as Noyox was firing his shots into the air. To provide a hostile background noise of the broadcast, he heard another gunshot, not his, being fired in the other room. As the broadcast finished, he left the control room and saw that a corpse was lying on the ground near the entrance. He walked over to the body and looked down. The corpse's face was too bloody to recognize. It was the local farmer who had been arrested the day before without explanation. It turned out the SS had a whole file on the dead man. The farmer had been a Polish sympathizer, an activist who had led protests against the German government, but had been living in Germany for years. He had been arrested from his home the day before without explanation, held not in a jail cell, but a storage closet with no record of his arrest. He had been driven to the radio station and given a lethal injection. He was then placed on the station floor and shot as if he had died in the struggle. Noyox watched as the blood was beginning to crust around the dead man's eyes. The young commander tilted his head as he studied the face of the lifeless body. Then he looked back, indifferently to ensure the rest of his men had left the control room. Then they all walked out of the building, got back into their cars, and sped off into the quiet night. The incident at the border had occurred. And on cue, Goebbels' propaganda machine began to run the story at a complete and utter fever. Evening editions of papers, radio broadcasts, all spoke of the Polish terrorist attack across the German border, and that the inevitable German retaliation that would come. The entire state-run media pushed the story across international wires. The story of the Polish terrorist attack would be propagated far and wide. It would be printed as fact across newspapers in Europe and America. The stage was now set. There is an ancient German myth, a story of passion, a story of wrath. A story of the Norse god-king Wotan, with the power of thunder, who had been defied by his favorite daughter. Wotan's daughter, Brunhilde, was a great warrior. She was one of the Amazon-like warrior women who protected the great fighters of man on the battlefield. They were winged goddesses that struck fear into their enemies, a menacing faction of the gods known by one name, the Valkyrie. 
Brunhilde's warrior that she was meant to defend had fallen into forbidden love and had broken the rules of the gods. Wotan commanded Brunhilde not to protect him any longer. But when she saw that his lover was with his child, Brunhilde broke the command of Wotan and decided to defend the warrior anyway. She gave him strength, and for a moment, it seemed like her warrior would win. But Wotan realized what was happening and grew fierce with rage. He destroyed the warrior's sword, and Brunhilde and the warrior's lover watched in horror as the man was stabbed to death by his enemy, defenseless. Brunhilde, in her fury and fear of her father, grabbed the warrior's lover and fled, so that she and her child could live on. Wotan swore revenge on Brunhilde, and raged across the fields of the gods after her, bringing with him an unspeakable storm of deafening thunder and blinding lightning as he chased after her. Brunhilde called on all of the Valkyrie from every corner of every battlefield to come to her aid, and they swarmed through the air darkening the skies as they circled the mountaintop where they gathered. They screamed, they cried their warrior calls. The deafening sound of their call seemed to be the only thing that could meet the coming storm. It was the sound of the ride of the Valkyries. It was the sound of the German Stuka dive bomber. daybreak, 4,000 fighters, bombers, and transport planes took off from their airfields on the Polish border, darkening the skies over Warsaw, Krakow, and Łódź. They brought with them the force of death. The sound, the growing siren, which began as a faint call in the distance, began to grow to alarm. Then it grew louder piercing the morning air. It steadily grew as the storm drew closer. Then, the thousands of planes above their targets began to break off the formation, one at a time, their wings tilting to the side, their nose pointing towards the ground, now flying at full speed towards the earth, the cry growing louder, Faster and faster as the bombers raced towards the earth, the cry, now a wail from the lungs of an infant, growing louder, higher, as the bombers came closer and faster. And then came the thunder. Thousands of tons of explosives on bridges, factories, airfields, and homes, 
and churches and schools and everywhere. Poland was on fire. 3,000 tanks roared into the Polish countryside, emerging from the darkness, penetrating into the daylight like a force from hell. A million and a half men fell on Poland from every side. It was the most complete showcase of the modern war machine. A combination of ground infantry, heavy artillery, mobile tanks, and a grand bombing campaign ripping the skies apart with an objective of overwhelming the enemy with power, speed, and unspeakable destruction. It was the Lightning War. It was the Blitzkrieg. It was the most destructive thing humanity had until that moment ever unleashed upon the Earth. Before the attack, the French believed that the Poles would be able to hold off the Germans for months. Hitler believed it would be a matter of weeks. But now, it did not appear that the Poles could last for mere hours. Germany has invaded Poland and has bombed many towns. General mobilization has been ordered in Britain and France. Parliament was summoned for six o'clock this evening. Orders completing the mobilization of the Navy, Army and Air Force were signed by the King at a meeting this afternoon of the Privy Council. Details will be given later in this news. The British cabinet met from half past 11 this morning until half past one, and both houses of parliament were summoned for six o'clock this evening. We hope to give the first part of Mr. Chamberlain's statement later in this news. Hitler thought back to the first day of the Great War, 25 years ago. Back then, through his young eyes, the streets of Berlin had been pandemonium. Parades, confetti, it was wild, euphoric war fever. Throngs of people cried in hysteria for Germany to show its might to the world, claim its national pride on the great continental stage, and celebrate the force by which Germany would exert that strength. It was a national holiday. Today, at the outset of Germany's first war since that day, Hitler was in his car on his way to address the Reichstag on the hostilities that had opened that morning. He was expecting the same fanfare. Instead, his car drove through empty streets. There was no celebration. There were no parades. Hitler's car drove through the city seemingly without notice. The applause greets the Führer who has just arrived in the Karl Opera House to address the Reichstag, which has been called an extraordinary session. We are expecting that Prime Minister Goering, in a very few moments, will open formally the session in the Reichstag. 
Hitler's speech to the Reichstag would be full of lies, false justification, and an attempt to control the narrative not only of his invasion, but the absence of Germany's allies. He was not dressed in his civilian suit. Instead, he donned a military coat, his chest bearing the Iron Cross which he was awarded for his time as a corporal during the Great War. In his speech, he said, For months, we have been suffering under the torture of the problem of which the Versailles diktat created, a problem which has deteriorated until it has finally become intolerable. I attempted to bring about, by peaceful methods, an alteration of this intolerable position. It is a lie when the outside world says that we only tried to carry negotiations through pressure. You know the endless attempts I made for a peaceful understanding, yet it was all in vain. I should like here, and above all, to thank Italy, which throughout has supported us. But you will understand that for carrying on this struggle, we do not intend to appeal for foreign help. We will carry out this task ourselves. Last night, for the first time, Polish regular soldiers fired on our territory. Since 5.45 a.m., we have been returning fire. And from now on, bombs will be met by bombs. Poison gas will be met by poison gas. Inhumane warfare will be met by inhumane warfare. I will continue this struggle, whomever is against us, until the safety of the Reich and its rights are restored. I am asking of no German man more than I myself was ready to do. There will be no hardships on Germans to which I myself will not submit. From this moment forward, my whole life belongs more than ever to my people. I am, from now on, just the first soldier of the German Reich. I have once more put on the military coat that was once most sacred and dear to me. I will not take it off again until victory is secured or my death. I will not take it off until victory is secured or my death. That was the only true thing Hitler said. Hostilities have been going on since early this morning along the frontiers between Germany and Poland. The German Supreme Command announced at half past 11 this morning that German troops had crossed all the frontiers, that the German Air Force had gone into action, and that the German Navy had taken charge of the Baltic. According to the Poles, it was at about 6 o'clock this morning that the first full-scale attacks began. A little later, Herr Forster, the Danzig Nazi leader, issued a proclamation uniting Danzig with Germany. He immediately sent a message to Herr Hitler, asking him to agree to this proclamation. Herr Hitler replied, I accept the proclamation. The law reuniting Danzig with the Reich is ratified forthwith. The people of Danzig were then told 
that their Führer, Adolf Hitler, had freed them. As the German dictator spoke to his puppet Congress, Hitler's war machine's push into Poland continued. The Polish armed forces had begun to fight back. Anti-aircraft guns downing a handful of bombers, some isolated assaults were repelled, but the Polish forces were not only outnumbered more than two to one, they were fighting a war in different eras. Much of the Polish military technology still resembled that of the Great War from two decades ago. By noon of September 1st, the great tidal wave of Hitler's armed forces had been pouring into Poland for six hours. As of yet, there had been no response from England or France. At the British Embassy in Berlin, Ambassador Henderson was waiting for official orders from London all morning. Finally, the first order from his government came in. Henderson pulled it from the hands of his secretary and read it. It said, Burn all documents. Minutes later, the second order came in. Make official request to American ambassador to take charge of British interests in the event of a war. Meanwhile, at the German Foreign Office, German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop was still confident in his thinking that England would not enter the fight. He believed that Germany had given England the out that it needed to stay out of the war. The lies that Poland had attacked first, that they had refused to negotiate. But that evening, at 7.15 p.m., Ribbentrop received a knock on his office door that made him begin to think that he might have been wrong. He was handed two notes, one from the English ambassador and the other from the French ambassador. They had been sent to the German Foreign Office at the same time. They were formal requests for both ambassadors to meet with Ribbentrop together as a matter of urgency as soon as possible. A unified request. Ribbentrop rejected the offer to meet with both diplomats at once, instead saying that he would meet with the English ambassador Henderson at nine o'clock and the French ambassador Coulondre at 10 o'clock. Each ambassador's meeting with the German foreign office was identical. Each ambassador walked into Ribbentrop's office and handed him an official note both notes read the same. Unless the German government give His Majesty's government satisfactory assurances that the German government have suspended all aggressive action against Poland and are prepared to promptly withdraw their forces from Polish territory, His Majesty's government will, without hesitation, fulfill its obligation to Poland. Ribbentrop replied to both ambassadors that he would relay these notes to the Führer. That night, British Prime Minister Chamberlain addressed Parliament. I do not mean to say many words tonight. The time has come when action rather than speech is required. This morning we ordered a complete mobilization of the whole of the Royal Navy army and air force. 
A bill will be laid before you for which all practical purposes will amount to an expansion of the Military Training Act. Under its operation, all fit men between the ages of 18 and 41 will be rendered liable to military service if and when called upon. It now only remains for us to set our teeth and to enter upon this struggle, which we ourselves earnestly endeavored to avoid with determination to see it through to the end. That night in Berlin, Hitler was growing more nervous. The deepening pit in his stomach had bottomed out and opened like a gaping cavern that disappeared into empty darkness. Based on the notes he had received and Chamberlain's speech to the British Parliament, he may very well have the war, possibly even the world war, that he did not want. Goring and the Swedish businessman Dolores once again appeared before Hitler to tell him what he already knew, that England was talking a lot, but had not yet done anything. They found their leader agitated, jittery, speaking to himself as if no one else was in the room again. Hitler was pacing back and forth, muttering under his breath. Every few steps, Hitler would stop and, rather than mumble, shout out a fragment of a sentence that he was saying to himself. All along, England wanted a war. Then he looked up at Dolores, the German dictator's eyes filled with a fiery rage. I will crush Poland. I will conquer the entire country. He was now uncontrollable. His voice grew louder. He walked right up to Dolores, waving his arms and shouting in his face as if the lone Swede was an audience of thousands. If England wants to fight for a year, I will fight for a year. If England wants to fight for two years, I will fight for two years. The pitch of his voice grew higher, almost shrill, as it did when he was reaching the crescendo of a speech at a rally, building on the momentum of a cheering crowd. But he wasn't in front of a crowd at a rally. He was in a room with an audience of two men, shouting into the face of a frightened Swedish businessman. If England wants to fight for three years, I will fight for three years! Then Hitler's entire body began to convulse, as if his shoulders and torso were following the lead of his flailing arms, gesticulating with a full arm as if he was slamming a great war hammer onto the ground. And if necessary, I will fight for ten years! But would they fight? At this moment, the British and France were indicating that they would. But where was the declaration of war? Where was the official notice? The Allies had been making threats of force against Hitler's aggression for years now, but none of it had mattered without taking the final step. Hitler believed his impossible luck, the luck from Munich, from Austria, from rearmament, would still hold. The German war machine continued to rage across Poland. Warsaw continued to be bombarded from the skies. No one slept. 
In the French Chamber of Deputies this afternoon, Monsieur Dallager reviewed the history of the last-minute diplomatic attempts to avert hostilities and went on to say that Poland was assured of help from the nations of free men. Monsieur Dallager said that France and Britain would not stand by at the destruction of friendly people. It was not a question of German-Polish conflict, he said, but of a new attempt to dominate Europe. Monsieur Dallager then recalled the joint démarche made by the British and French ambassadors in Berlin and repeated that France would unhesitatingly fulfill her obligations unless the attack on Poland stopped. September 2nd. Hitler had not responded to neither England nor France's official notes. It appeared as if both countries were still reacting to the events, getting their houses in order, making decisions. England and France were not alone. All morning, the Italian foreign minister, Ciano, was making his last attempt to prevent a second world war. He had been trying desperately to mediate talks with Germany and England, trying to get them to the table, to get England to come back and hash things out at another conference, like Munich. But England refused. They said they would be glad to sit down with the Germans again the moment they pulled their forces back out of Poland. Ciano knew this would never happen, and after several of these attempts had failed in the late hours of the morning, the Italian foreign minister realized that his hope of preventing this total war was lost. By the afternoon, the telephone lines between London and Paris were white-hot with activity and coordination. By now, Hitler's lack of response was helping them think more clearly. Hitler was not responding because the longer that he waited, the more territory he could claim before he decided to stop on his own as a magnanimous peacekeeper. The British Foreign Secretary Halifax was spending every hour on the phone with Paris, both countries trying to get on the same page as to how they would respond. This is not as simple as it sounds. First, remember that a unified front is almost as important as responding at all. This German military, the one that was massacring the Polish countryside at this very moment, was a formidable enemy. And while the Allies had fought Germany in the Great War, this was a new, modern fighting force, one that neither France nor England had ever seen in battle before. Second, while England seemed to be the one pushing for an immediate response and declaration of war as soon as possible, remember it would not be England that would be in immediate danger. England was separated from Germany by a body of water. It would be France. France, who had said they were not ready for a war of aggression. They were still months away from mobilizing an invasion force. And so, if France attacked at this moment, they had no confidence that it would be decisive against Germany, and risked plunging their homeland into another mechanized killing field like it had been for so many years during the Great War. So many dead. It's five o'clock. The two foreign secretaries were on the phone. The reports from Poland were devastating. 
The Polish forces, which they had expected to hold against a German attack for several months at least, was collapsing under the speed and brute force of the Blitzkrieg. British Foreign Secretary Halifax knew that Hitler's lack of response meant he was trying to complete his objective first, finished his land grab, then make a proposal of peace. To prevent this, Halifax was pushing for the two countries to give Hitler a final ultimatum. That at midnight, he proposed, the two countries would tell Hitler that if Germany did not begin to show their pullback of forces from Poland, they would declare war. The French foreign secretary said that they were not ready for that. He suggested another 48 hours so the French could continue their mobilization and be more prepared for the fighting that would come, pointing out that it would be France doing all of the fighting and that there would be not a single British soldier there to help them, that they did not have the luxury of the English Channel defended by the Royal Navy. Halifax was furious. 48 hours would be impossible. The French attitude is very embarrassing for His Majesty's government. At six o'clock, Chamberlain once again had to address Parliament, still with no answers. Hitler's invasion of Poland had been raging for 39 hours, with no response from the British Empire. Chamberlain tried to buy more time. His Majesty's government will, as stated yesterday, be bound to take action unless the German forces are withdrawn from Polish territory. We are in communication with the French government as to the limit of time for the German withdrawal. As Chamberlain finished, the head of the opposition party got up to speak. As he stepped up to the podium, someone shouted, Speak for England! The minority leader spoke. I am speaking under very difficult circumstances with no opportunity to think about what I should say. I speak what is in my heart at this moment. I am gravely disturbed. An act of aggression took place more than 30 hours ago. The moment that act of aggression took place, one of the most important treaties of modern times automatically came into operation. How long are we prepared to vacillate at a time when Britain and all that Britain stands for and human civilization are in peril? We must march with the French. Tomorrow we meet at noon, and I hope the Prime Minister will be able to tell us when the House meets at noon tomorrow what the final decision is. I believe the die is cast. Chamberlain walked out of the House of Commons and got on the phone with his counterpart in France, Prime Minister Deladier. He was candid about his position to the French leader. The situation here is very grave. There has been an angry scene in the House. If France were to insist on a 48-hour wait, it would be impossible to hold the government here. We would lose control. I quite realize it must be the French to take the brunt of the German attack, but some steps must be taken this evening. He then proposed a compromise to the French, that the two countries would deliver their ultimatum to the German government at 8 a.m. the following morning, 
which would expire at noon tomorrow. If they did not receive an answer from Germany by then, he proposed, they should declare war. Here is a later report from the House of Commons. The Prime Minister made a short reply to Mr. Greenwood's speech. He said he shared the disgust expressed by the House at manoeuvres of the kind that were going on. The government, he added, was in a somewhat difficult position since it was difficult to synchronise action with allies by telephone. He said he felt certain he would be able to make a statement tomorrow. The House adjourned till midday tomorrow. 11 p.m. Halifax called his French counterpart to try to convince them to go along with Prime Minister's compromise. But the French minister still resisted, citing the state of France's army, saying that the British insistence on speed would lead to a deplorable condition. He demanded that London wait at least until noon tomorrow to present Hitler with the ultimatum. Halifax's rage was back. It is impossible for His Majesty's government to wait until that hour. It is very doubtful that this administration will still exist by then. We will have all been voted out of office. Finally, Halifax told the French foreign minister that the British government was prepared to act alone if necessary. He hung up the phone. Then he picked it up again. Get me Ambassador Henderson. Eleven fifty p.m. In Berlin, British Ambassador Henderson was waiting by the phone. The air was thick and tense. The phone rang. It was Halifax in London. I may need to send you instructions tonight to make immediate communication to the German government. Be ready to act. You had better warn the German minister that you may have to ask to see him at any moment. Thirty minutes later, Henderson's phone rang again. It was Halifax with more detailed instructions. You should ask for an appointment with Foreign Minister Ribbentrop at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Further instructions will follow. Overnight, the French had come to their decision as well. They would present Hitler with their ultimatum at noon tomorrow. Again, no one slept. The commander of the German armed forces made the following announcement Saturday evening. The German troops have been advancing successfully along all frontiers. The Polish army detachments stationed in the northern parts of the corridor section have thus been cut off. A German Air Force dealt heavy blows to military objectives in Poland by lightning like actions. Numerous Polish airplanes were destroyed in aerial encounters. A great number of military aerodromes were attacked from the ground, especially in the vicinity of the following towns Gdynia, Krakow, Lodz, Radom, Demblin, Brest-Tiraspol, Lublin, Lak, Gotha. After all of the disorder, the reeling from the surprise German invasion, the second guessing that took place in all Allied capitals over the last 48 hours, was finally gone. No one was running down hallways. No one was panicking to save Europe from plunging the world into another great war. 
In its place was steel resolve. Today, there was only one thing to be done. On September 1st, Adolf Hitler had started a war. Today, on September 3rd, there would be the start of a world war. Ambassador Henderson hadn't slept. It was still dark when the telegram came in from Halifax in London. It was an order from His Majesty's government. Henderson read it, then put it down. He read it again. He read it again. Then he picked up the phone and tried once again to reach German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop to set up his 9 a.m. appointment as he was instructed. It was Sunday, and his office had not responded to him yet. Finally, he got through. He was informed that the foreign minister would not be available at 9 a.m., but a message for him could be left with Hitler's personal aide and interpreter, Dr. Schmidt, the same interpreter present at the heated meeting between Henderson and Ribbentrop. Henderson knew Schmidt and said this would be sufficient. He hung up the phone and began to get ready to attend the most important meeting of his life. That moment, Dr. Schmidt, Hitler's personal interpreter, the man who was supposedly available to receive this urgent message from the British government, awoke in his bed with a panicking gasp of air. He had overslept. He looked at the time and jumped out of bed, quickly changing, running out into the street and got into a taxi that sped to the foreign office. The streets on this Sunday morning in Berlin were clear. Cutting through traffic, he arrived at the foreign office side entrance, where the staff could enter. He could see as he got out of the taxi that the British Ambassador Henderson was already climbing the steps into the building. Schmidt was able to get into his office and sit behind his desk just as Henderson arrived and pretended to be hard at work, hiding his heavy breathing. Just as he laid the papers in front of him, the chime of nine o'clock rang. At that exact moment, British Ambassador Henderson opened the office door. His face was grim, like it was made of stone. He walked into the office, approaching Schmidt's desk. The two men shook hands. Dr. Schmidt offered Henderson to sit down. Henderson declined and said he would remain standing. Then, Henderson, holding a piece of paper, extended his hand to read, slowly, the statement from His Majesty's government. He then put the paper on Schmidt's desk, said goodbye, turned about face, and walked out of the office. Schmidt waited until he could hear Henderson leave the building. He then grabbed the British statement from his desk and sprinted out of his office. He needed to tell Ribbentrop. He needed to tell Hitler. He sped in a car to the Wilhelmstrasse and arrived at the Chancellery out of breath. He kept running up through the courtyard, through the columns, through the Great Hall, through the double doors, to Hitler's office where it seemed like the entire cabinet and the German dictator himself were already waiting for him. 
They all looked up at him anxiously. Schmidt now walked past them toward Hitler's desk. There the German warlord sat, looking up at his out-of-breath translator, holding a piece of paper. Ribbentrop was standing by the window, his arms folded and stiff. His confidence that England would stay out of the war was holding on its last thread. Schmidt stopped a few feet from Hitler's desk. He swallowed. His throat was dry. He then raised the statement in front of him and began to slowly translate the British statement. Although a communication was made more than 24 hours ago, no reply has been received. But German attacks upon Poland have continued and intensified. I have accordingly the honor to inform you that, unless satisfactory assurances have been given by the German government and have reached His Majesty's government in London no later than 11 a.m. British summer time today, September 3rd, a state of war will exist between our two countries as of that hour. Hitler sat. He did not move. He did not blink. His face did not change. He just sat in silence. Silence, as every single person in the room realized all at once that the worst had just happened. The British Empire had declared war on Germany. It would conclude with either the end of Britain or the end of Hitler. Around the room, the usually arrogant faces of Göring, Goebbels, and Hitler's cabinet were now faces of fear, of shock, of despair, of silent screams. This was not supposed to happen. At last, Hitler's face began to change. He was no longer the stoic face of resolve, but now twisted and contorted to the face of anger, of betrayal, a look that knew he had been misled by his foreign minister, that the confidence Ribbentrop spoke in every time he said that England would never enter a war for Poland was wrong. It was a savage look. He snapped his head towards Ribbentrop and shouted at him, what now? What now? What now? Now the world ends. For the next six years, V 
the entire world will be plunged into the most destructive conflict in human history. It will be fought on every continent, in every ocean, in the skies, under the seas, on the battlefields, in the streets, on the beaches, in the death camps. Before it is all over, 85 million people would be killed, triple the number of deaths in the First World War. It will be catastrophic. And now you know how it started. Context, over a long enough period of time, is history. When you have context, you have the answer to the question of how and why. How to start a war is a story from the past that can help us understand our world today. And today, there are some pieces of this story that are not taking place in the past, but are happening right now. In Chapter 8, the one you just heard, the Nazi government fabricated a border incident, using German commandos dressed in unmarked clothing, disguised as Polish fighters, as an excuse to invade Poland. And in 2014, the Russian government fabricated a border incident, using Russian commandos dressed in unmarked clothing, disguised as Ukrainian fighters, as an excuse to invade Crimea, Ukraine. In Chapter 6, the general public learned about Kristallnacht, a persecution of an entire people, millions of them separated from national culture because of their ethnic background and religion. Their persecution orchestrated, funded, and celebrated by the national government of a major developed power, Germany, and nothing was done to stop it. And in 2018, the general public learned about the mass detention of Uyghur Muslims, a persecution of an entire people, millions of them separated from a national culture because of their ethnic background and religion. Their persecution orchestrated, funded, and celebrated by the national government of a major developed power, China, and nothing was done to stop it. In Chapter 3, you learned of a brutal consolidation of power in Germany, triggered by a national crisis, the Reichstag fire, into seizing powers from a representative government, leading to a vicious crackdown of murders and mass arrests of political enemies, all to center German power around a single man. And in 2016, there was another brutal consolidation of power in Turkey, triggered by a national crisis, a failed military coup, seizing powers from a representative government, leading to a vicious crackdown of murders, mass arrests of political enemies, all to center Turkish power around a single man. 
and in Chapter 1, in November of 1923, you learned of a violent insurrection in Munich, Germany, an attempt to overthrow democracy by force and fear, which began with a hot-tempered speech and ended at a central government building in death, chaos, and national shock of the Beer Hall Putsch, carried out by supporters of Adolf Hitler. And in January of 2021, there was another violent insurrection in Washington in the United States, an attempt to overthrow democracy by force and fear, which began with a hot-tempered speech and ended at a central government building in death, chaos, and national shock at the January 6th insurrection carried out by supporters of President Donald Trump. How to start a war is not only about the rise of fascism in the 1930s and its logical, catastrophic ends, it is also about just how close we are to such a trajectory today. The eighth and final factor in how to start a war is indifference. If you're anything like me, you probably look around and think, this system is running, with or without me. There are power structures that keep society moving, right? The people that live in it, like you and me, are just the audience. We're not part of the forces that keep society moving. But if you live in a democracy, you are arguably the most important part of those forces. Do democracies work in the same idealistic way that you were taught when you were young? No, of course they don't. They have a lot of problems. And because those problems seem so big and insurmountable, you wouldn't be blamed in thinking that this system, this democracy, isn't designed to work for you. But here's the thing. Democracy is not an immovable structure set in stone. It is a pliable system that can be changed, improved, and made to work for you. Only if you choose to participate in it. And you can be sure a democracy will never work for you, never do anything constructive, efficient, or just, if we, the stewards of the democracy, are not paying attention, or shrugging off bad things when they happen, or give up when we don't win, when we are cynical. When that happens, those who wish to empower a small few will win, and the rest of us will lose. Not all at once, but through a slow and careful process designed to, over time, concentrate power and wealth. When the people choose not to engage in the system to make it work for them, we are, at the same time, ceding authority to those who wish to make it work for them. They are counting on your cynicism. They are counting on your silence. When a desperate population turns to a dangerous figure who promises them safety, prosperity, national pride, 
when a disorganized opposition leaves the door open for a demagogue to consolidate power, when tyrants are appeased and allowed to exert their dominance over others without consequence, when genocide is willfully ignored, they are counting on good people like you and me to do nothing to stop the worst people on earth. It has all happened before. And if we are not paying attention, it will happen again. It is our job as students of the crimes of our past to see them in the world today and call them what they are. Vote in every election. Pay attention to what your elected representatives are doing. Volunteer, donate, stay active, stay engaged. Be the better version of us that you want to see. Because our very lives and the lives of our children depend on it. I'm Michael Trapani. This has been How to Start a War. Thank you for listening. Hello.